Here on Strong Songs, I talk about half notes, quarter notes, eighth notes, and sixteenth notes. But in the UK and elsewhere, they use different terms for rhythmic subdivision. Breathe, semi-breathe, crotchet, quaver, semi-quaver, all the way down to my favorite, the hemi-demi-semi-quaver. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about music made up of eighth notes, music made up of semi-quavers, and music made up entirely of demi-semi-quavers. Strong Songs is a one-man operation. I make this whole show by myself. I put a ton of work into every episode, and I get to make the exact show I want thanks to your support. There's links to the Strong Songs Patreon in the show notes, as well as a PayPal link for one-time donations. Thank you so much to everyone who's helped me make this show. On this episode, questions, questions, we've got so many questions. You all write in with the most interesting musical mysteries, and I have a great time trying to solve them for you. We've got questions on video game themes, mystery instruments, and a surprising amount of James Bond. So let's open the inbox, put on some tea, and get reading. been practicing a lot of guitar lately. I'm slowly getting better at the instrument, and I have to say, if I have a single piece of advice to share with you all regarding how best to practice music, it is to use a metronome. I know I've given this advice before. I've talked about metronomes many times on the show, but I know that not everyone listens to every episode, and I'm just going to give this advice again, because really you can never say it too many times. So often I find that the difference between just noodling around on the instrument and actually practicing is whether or not I have the metronome turned on. The thing has just taken on an almost totemic power for me. It is the truth to me in so many ways. I have my guitars out of my studio at all times. They're just always within easy reach, which is a great way to make it as easy as possible to just pick one up and start playing. It's also useful for me professionally, and as I'm working on the show, of course, I need to have all my instruments out. But if you do play an instrument like that, it is a good idea to keep it out and keep it readily accessible. So sometimes I'll just pick up a guitar, turn it on, and just start messing around. And that's fine. That can be fun. But if I want to actually make progress on the instrument, I have to turn on the metronome. The metronome can be very frustrating. Practicing with a metronome is rare fun in the same way as actually playing or performing music can be, but that's kind of the point. A character on the show, Ted Lasso, recently said something along the lines of, the truth will set you free, but first it'll really tick you off. It's a great line It comes up several times in the show's second season, and I gotta say, the same thing can be said of the metronome. It'll really tick you off. It can be a very frustrating thing, but in the end, it'll set you free. Okay, our first question comes from Mark. Mark writes, In the song Wishing by John Frusciante, there are what sound like two looped piano tracks entering at about 40 seconds in that are playing seemingly random notes irrespective of the rhythm in the song. Is there anything more to this technique? Are the notes that he plays within the key of the song? And how does he achieve this unique sound? All right, well, let's listen. This is Wishing by John Frusciante, best known as the guitarist for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So you can definitely hear the piano sound that Mark is asking about in the left and the right channels, and it does seem to be moving at its own tempo, definitely at its own pace. Never change to five your eyes. 
It's a really cool sound. It's very evocative. I'm not 100% on what that is. It could be some kind of prepared piano. Like, it's definitely some kind of hammered piano instrument. It could be like a toy piano or maybe a piano with something muting the strings. It's a sound I've definitely heard before, but I wouldn't know how to recreate it in the studio. Though I probably own some sample packs that have that sound. So I'm not sure if this is a sample or something that Frashanti recorded separately. I'm guessing, knowing him, that he actually recorded this. I would say that he's deliberately layered it in a way that resists the groove of the song. So it's out of time, but it's not out of the key of the song. It's actually very strongly in the key of the song. So this song is in E major, and both piano parts are keeping centered around the E pentatonic scale. So even though the song kind of moves through a chord progression, C sharp minor, G sharp minor, E major, up to F sharp minor, those five notes in the E pentatonic scale, they sound fine over all of those chords, and the piano part is playing just kind of centered around those five notes. So I've explained pentatonic scales before, but just really quickly again, a pentatonic scale, it's one of the simplest and most timeless types of scale. Pentatonic has five notes, pentatonic. In European theory, the major pentatonic scale is just like the major scale, only without the fourth and the seventh scale degrees. So you go one, two, three, five, six, and then you're back to the octave and you're repeating. If you know any music theory, you know that the two notes that we've removed, the fourth and the seventh, also remove any half steps from the scale, because there's a half step between the third and the fourth, and a half step between the seventh and the eighth, and they also remove a tritone, because there's a tritone in between the fourth and the seventh. So you've pulled out all the half steps and you've pulled out the tritone from the scale, which are kind of the major sources of dissonance in the scale, and that leaves you with this big, open, super flexible sound that can kind of sound good in any, like, any way that you want to play it, and that's one of the reasons that pentatonic scales are so popular um, among songwriters and also among jazz musicians, you can do a lot of stuff with advanced pentatonic theory and application in jazz. So it's a really flexible scale, and that flexibility works well in the song since the piano part is so purposefully jumbly and out of time, but it doesn't have to line up perfectly with the chords of the song because it's just centered around the pentatonic scale, so whatever note is ringing during whatever chord is pretty much gonna sound fine, and you get this nice out-of-focus effect rhythmically, but it's not out of focus so much that it's like dissonant or jolting because it's still in the key. It's the notes all sound fine, it's just that the rhythms are a little bit strange. So it's a kind of gentle and almost calming sort of effect. It's really, really cool. Elliot writes, I have a question about one of the main themes from the Metroid games. I love this theme, which first appeared in Super Metroid. It's kind of the last time on Metroid theme that plays during the story recap at the beginning. I was reminded of how cool it is when they reused it in Metroid Dread. Here's my question, where the heck is the downbeat during the first part of this piece of music? I realize I've been hearing this theme for 20 plus years and I actually don't know how to count along to it. I think this is only a problem in the original version from Super Metroid rather than later versions. No matter how many times I listen to it, that big dramatic drum hit always catches me off guard and I can never settle into the groove until later when the melody comes in. Is something weird going on here or is it intentional? Well, it's not exactly weird and it's definitely intentional, but I can see why this would throw you off. So let's listen to the very beginning of this piece of music to hear that dramatic drum hit that Elliot is wondering about. <laughs> so that was the hidden question. And now it's about to happen again. 
So this Metroid theme, which was composed by Kenji Yamamoto, it's all about the 16th note pulse, or I guess I should say the semi-quaver pulse, but I can't do it. I can't do it, guys. I um, I want to acknowledge that those other terms exist, but I'm not going to start using them because it would just make this whole thing too confusing, and I'm too used to the way that we do things in the U.S. So it's all about the 16th note pulse, which means four notes in a beat. Those are 16th notes. That's where the pulse is, and that's where the downbeat is. So the key to putting that hit you just heard in context is to count it as a 16th tuplet, because it is. Digga 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 digga. So the hit happens on the 4th 16th note of the 4th beat of the bar, so that's right before the downbeat, and it kind of sounds like a downbeat, but it's not. It's 1 16th note early, so it anticipates the downbeat. It's digga 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 digga. If you slow that way down, bigga digga 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 digga. You've got to hear it that way, kind of really slow, before you'll be comfortable hearing it when it's faster. Even then, it still sounds a little bit funny, I think partly due to the nature of the sound, or maybe actually due to the rhythm. But if you can get your head around that, around it being on that 4th 16th note of the 4th beat, digga 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 digga, if you can start to hear it that way, you'll get more comfortable with just sort of letting your ear sit there and, and feel where it really is, and then you won't be thrown off by it. And then of course, like you said, by the time the melody comes in, it's super clear where the actual downbeat is. So hopefully that's helpful when you're next counting the Super Metroid theme, and man, Metroid's got good music and Metroid Dread, it's a pretty good game. Uh, just a reminder to anyone who doesn't know, I do have a video game podcast called Triple Click, and we're going to be talking about that game, I think this same week that you're hearing this episode, uh, the very next day, so on Thursday, there will be an episode all about Metroid Dread. Very exciting to have a new Metroid game after so long, and it is a really good game. And actually, speaking of Metroid games, Leo writes in with a question about a newer series that is very inspired by the Metroid series. Leo writes, I have a question. In the song Qualox Malaise from Ori and the Will of the Wisps, at 1.33, a weird instrument comes in that I can't identify. What is it? My best guess is maybe it's a didgeridoo, but I am not sure. So Ori and the Will of the Wisps is a Metroid-inspired game that came out, I think, last year. It's a really good game. Um, great music by Gareth Coker, and uh, this is actually a familiar sound to longtime listeners of the show. So this is from Qualox Malaise. So that sound is something that I have talked about on the show in the past. I think on at least one or maybe even more than one mailbag episodes of the show, that is the sound of multiphonic throat singing, also known as Mongolian or Tuvan throat singing, which has its roots in the Asian region of Tuva. It's this evocative, beautiful sound. It's turning up more and more places these days. I actually recently heard it in another video game called Ghosts of Tsushima. A new expansion for that game has enemies who perform throat singing to power up their compatriots. So whenever you hear throat singing in that game, you immediately think, I need to go kill the person who is performing that throat singing, which is not what I normally think when I hear this beautiful and interesting style of music, but that's video games for you. Shaman's chant bolsters his allies. 
So it's a very similar sound on Ori and the Will of the Wisps, though it's less distinct and has less character in Ori. In Ghost of Tsushima, those are literally invading Mongolians. They used a recording of a guy singing in that style. They're really going for authenticity. On the Ori soundtrack, it's kind of just more of a texture that turns up. It evokes the tonal characteristics of throat singing. I'm assuming that somewhere along the line, they recorded someone to either get this sample or put it in a library or something, but it's not going for the actual sounds. You know, they're not trying to recreate the real thing. I don't know if Coker was using a sound library for this, if he hired someone to actually perform the sound. My guess is that it was a sound library just based on my knowledge of the development of this game, which I think was totally made remotely. It's kind of a double-A, like, mid-tier budget game. I don't see them hiring someone just to perform tube and throat singing. So it's probably a library that you can get that has a whole lot of sounds like that because, like I said, it's becoming an increasingly common sound. And that's what I hear when I hear this. It's a sort of layered thing. There's one voice in the center and then there's also this sort of ambient voice on the outside with some reverb on it that creates a very evocative soundscape for this part of this piece, which is also, if you know where this plays in the game, it's a very evocative piece of music. Now, I'm not an expert in throat singing, but I do have an understanding of the basics. The way it works is you hold a fundamental pitch, usually very low, and then you reshape the resonant chamber in your mouth to manipulate the upper harmonics of that low frequency that you're holding, and you can kind of sing melodies in the overtones above the note. That's why I call it multiphonic uh, throat singing. It is a multiphonic type of singing, unless you actually sing two notes at once. It's truly multiphonic, which is really cool and gives it that unusual otherworldly sound. That's Tuvan throat singer Congor Olondo off of the 2002 Bela Fleck and the Flecktones live album, Live at the Quick. That album was actually the first time that I ever heard this style of singing, and I was immediately taken with it. <laughs> Now, Leo, I will say that your guess of a didgeridoo actually isn't that far off. The didgeridoo is a wind instrument, like a long pipe. It was developed by Aboriginal peoples in Northern Australia, but it actually works in a similar way, just in terms of physics, to tube and throat singing on a didgeridoo. You also hold a fundamental pitch, and then you manipulate overtones to isolate a higher melody that moves around over that steady lower note. Obviously, they're from two very different cultures. They're used to play very different music, but just in terms of raw physics and their general tonal characteristics, they're actually a little bit similar. Uh, that's Lewis Burns, the Aboriginal musician. He's performing on a didgeridoo, doing all kinds of cool stuff. This is from a video on YouTube that you got to watch. It's so cool. He's an amazing musician. And man, he really shows what you can do with an instrument like the didgeridoo if you really know what you're doing. At any rate, Leo, I understand why you would guess that it's a didgeridoo, but when I listen to that clip from Ori and the Will of the Wisps, I hear throat singing, a very cool, very distinctive sound.
Taylor writes, I have trouble trying to figure out the time signatures of any songs I can't easily reduce to a 3-4 or a 4-4 feel. How do musicians figure out where one is when figuring out songs with tricky rhythms? I know when something is off, but I don't really know where to go from there. So to help Taylor out, I'm actually going to answer another couple of questions about time signatures, since lots of people do write in with questions about odd meters. I'm going to answer a couple of questions and maybe work through my process a little bit for figuring out the counting. So the first one of those comes from Michael. Michael writes, I remember hearing on a podcast years ago, possibly the podcast I Was There Too, that Brad Fiedel's theme for The Terminator has a notoriously unusual time signature. Can you shed any light on this? Um, yes, I absolutely can. I think I wrote about this way back in the day when I was a blogger full-time. I don't think I've ever talked about this on the show, which seems weird because I actually spent a while looking into this theme song from the original 1984 Terminator film. So let's just listen to it. This is Brad Fiedel's theme from The Terminator. Terminator. Definitely a tricky one in terms of the counting. This is a piece that I've been asked about a few times at various points because it's harder to figure out than your average odd meter piece of music. That's partly because the groove is one thing, but when the melody comes in, it floats over that groove with almost no connection to it. So it sounds like you're listening to two separate time signatures superimposed on top of one another. And actually that is the case, but I'll talk about that more in a second. First of all, let's just work out the counting on this basic groove. Dick-um, 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 dun dun. So first of all, the answer. This piece is in 13. I guess you could call it 1316 because I guess those are 16th notes according to the tempo. I tend to think of it as 138. It's all a little bit relative, but I just don't generally think of time signatures as being in 16. But what the heck, let's be accurate. We'll call it 1316. That means there are 13 16th notes in each one of those phrases. Now that sounds complicated. 13 is a really big number. That sounds like it would be hard to count and hard to keep straight. But when I actually count this for you, like when I break it down, I'm not thinking of it as one big collection of 13 16th notes. I'm thinking of it as a group of threes and twos. Three and two, those are much smaller numbers, and that's really the key to figuring out the counting for anything with a complex compound meter. You break it down into its component parts, you isolate those, and then you just figure out what the pattern is. In this case, the pattern is three groups of three followed by two groups of two. So in order to get there, first you have to just identify the pattern, which means listening a whole bunch of times until you kind of get your head around what it is that's repeating, you know, what one time through a phrase sounds like. In this case, it sounds like dig on, dig on, dig on, dun, dun. Listen enough times and you'll just start to hear it. Dig on, dig on, dig on, dun, dun, dig on, dig on, dig on, dun, dun. So you don't need to be counting it yet. You just need to hear what the pattern is. Dig on, dig on, dig on, dun, dun. Then you can slow down and kind of pick it apart. Okay, so dig on, dig on, dig on. What is that? Well, that's kind of one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Dig it, dig it, dig it. It's three groups of three. Dig it, dig it, dig it, and then dun dun. Okay, so it's one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two. And once you start to kind of pick it apart and go really slowly through it, dig on, dig on, dig on. 
Then you'll have a feel for how it works, even though you haven't necessarily figured out exactly how many beats there are in each phrase. Then just think about those component parts and add them up. So it's like, okay, well, it's three groups of three, that's nine, and then two groups of two, that's four. So nine plus four is thirteen. So in the end, this is a thirteen-beat figure. And then you just let yourself practice counting it and just count along with it a whole bunch of times. Dig on, dig on, dig on, dum, da. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. Then on this tune, if you really want to test yourself, keep singing along with the groove when the melody comes in because that's not easy to do. So going back to Taylor's question about figuring out odd or compound meters, when they say they can actually only count four or three comfortably, that's actually all you need to be able to work out even some really complex meters because you only need groups of four or three or maybe two, and then you just work out what pattern they're moving in. So for example, something in seven eight is commonly just four plus three. Dig it, dig it, dig it, dig. One two three four one two three. Bum 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 bum. Or maybe they'll switch it up and they'll go three and then four. So bum 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 bum. It might sound complicated what I'm doing right now, but because I can think of the little Lego blocks that create each groove, it's not very mentally taxing at all. Take another example. Nine eight. Nine eight sounds complicated, but what if nine eight was just two plus two plus two plus three? One two one two one two one two three one two one two one two one two three. Loop that over and over again, and you've got a tune that's in nine eight. That, of course, is Dave Brubeck's Blue Rondo a la Turk, a great tune in 9/8 that I've talked about in the past on this show. It's a good example of an odd meter tune that's still pretty easy to count once you get your head around it. It even changes up the compound counting on the final figure. It goes from one two one two one two one two three to one two three one two three one two three. Even then, though, it's pretty easy to keep track of. That is not really the case for Brad Fiedel's Terminator theme. It really is a strange one in part because of that melody. It just fits over the groove so weirdly. And as I mentioned, that is for a reason. There's actually this cool article from 2014 in Slate by Seth Stevenson where he spoke with Fiedel about the theme. And as it turns out, he'd sequenced a loop using his synthesizers. I think he was using a Prophet and a couple of other really cool 80s synths. And he wound up with this weird meter without really intending it. And he's a pretty improvisational composer, so he's just in his studio. I'm picturing him, you know, a synth lord surrounded by all of his cool 1980s synths, and he's got this loop going that just happens to be missing a 16th note from something more even. So it's this 13/16 groove, and he just kind of worked with it. He wrote this theme over it, and that's why you get a melody that's so disconnected from the main groove because it was just a loop that was going on his synthesizers that he kind of just let ride while he wrote the melody. So the Terminator theme is in 13/16. It is a lurching. Ominous synth groove that certainly fits the film it's introducing.
Next up, we've got a couple of James Bond-related questions. The first one comes from Mike, who writes, When they were making the fourth Daniel Craig Bond picture, they tossed out a net for theme song performers, which is standard operating procedure for the Bond franchise. The producers usually hear a handful of acts' attempts at making a Bond song. Caught in the net this time was Radiohead. They wrote this killer track, Mike writes, and he wishes that they wound up going with it for the movie. So this is Radiohead Spectre from 2015, and here's Mike's question, which is, how do we count this? It seems like it's in 4-4, at least when the lyrics come in, but then the percussion comes in and I lose the groove. So, Mike, fortunately, this is a pretty easy one. This song is actually in 3-4 time, though it has a little bit of an unusual groove. So to count that, you just want to kind of focus on a pulse that's right here. A one, two, three, one, two, three. Mm -hmm. A one, two, three, one, two, three. So the thing that makes this a little bit tricky is Philip Selway's drum groove, specifically where he's placing his snare drum hits. He's playing on the downbeat on one and then on the upbeat after two. So one, two, and one, two, get, 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 get. So it's in three, but he's playing the snare drum on the downbeat and it makes the whole thing feel a little bit syncopated and uneven. It just isn't quite what everyone's ear might be used to because the snare usually functions as a pop, right? Like thump, pop, boom, got, boom, got, right? And a standard, you know, three, four, boom, got, da, boom, got. You know, like that kind of 3-4 groove people are pretty used to. But when you put the snare drum on one, it's a little bit different. And it takes a little bit of getting used to. But once you hear it, I think that you'll be able to hear it pretty consistently because they are pretty consistent about how they play it. Though it's a little jazzy, they're a little bit loose with what they're doing. So that's what time signature it's in. It's in 3-4. The emphasis is just on the downbeat. And I agree with you. This would have been a killer Bond theme. Our second Radiohead question comes from Helen. Helen writes, I'm hoping you might be able to settle a dispute between a friend and me about You Only Live Twice, as performed by Nancy Sinatra for the Bond film You Only Live Twice. Yes, Helen, I can. I love settling disputes for people. So Helen writes, can you identify the instrument that plays after the strings in the opening bars that echoes the theme that they play underneath the vocals? I've always assumed it was some sort of an oboe or maybe a really high shawm or something. My friend is equally convinced that it's done by an electric guitar, but I'm not sold. To my ear, it sounds much more like a keyed instrument. Googling hasn't shed any light. Please, can you help us preserve our friendship? Or if not, at least prove me right. Okay, Helen, well, I listened to this and I do think I know what it is, but let's let everybody listen first. This is You Only Live Twice, as performed by Nancy Sinatra on the Bond film of the same name. And here comes the sound in question. It plays underneath the lead vocals. You only live twice. 
All right, so this is a classic Bond song. It was composed by famed Bond composer John Barry for one of those real classic Bond films. As for what that instrument is, well, Helen, I gotta say, I totally understand what you're hearing and why you might think that this was some sort of a double read, but in the end, I am with your friend on this one. I do think that this is an electric guitar way up on the neck, moving down the first string and occasionally bending notes. Let's just listen to it again and then I'll explain a little bit more about why I'm pretty sure that's what it is. You only live twice or so So this is definitely tricky, especially those first few notes. The first time that I heard those, my first thought was absolutely this is some sort of double reed instrument, but then I listened a little bit longer and there are a couple of tells that make it clear this is actually an electric guitar, really high up on the neck with some distortion and it's kind of recorded weirdly, like it's a very degraded kind of distorted recording, which also makes it a little hard to identify as a guitar. Helen mentions the shawm, which is a cool instrument to know about, that's a very old double reed instrument. It was the precursor of instruments like the oboe and the bassoon that you'll see in orchestras today. For those who aren't in the woodwind know, a double reed instrument is just what it sounds like. It's a woodwind instrument that produces sound with two reeds. Now I don't actually play double reed instruments. All of the woodwinds that I play are single reed instruments, so I play clarinet and I play saxophone. Those woodwinds, they, uh, they just use one reed and the reed is sort of placed on rails in the mouthpiece, and then the reed vibrates against the mouthpiece after you put wind into it. So it takes the wind, it vibrates against the mouthpiece, and that's where it produces the fundamental tone that the horn itself then amplifies and shapes. An oboe, a bassoon, or a shawm, they actually don't have a mouthpiece. There are just two reeds. So there's the one reed, and then you lash another reed, you know, so they're kind of back to back, and then you just buzz them off of one another in your mouth. So the result is a much buzzier, brighter sound. It has that kind of nasal quality that instantly identifies it as a double reed. There are higher double reeds like the English horn or the oboe. And then there's the bassoon, one of my very favorite instruments, the lower double reed, a sound unlike any other sound in the orchestra. Just is there any better sound? The bassoon has really grown on me over the years. It's like the trombone of woodwinds. It's just, it's got this great sound. It's so fun to watch people play it. It's such a hard instrument to play. I tried to play the bassoon once back in school and that instrument has like 75 thumb keys. It's just totally bananas. Anyways, uh, those two performances, the bassoon performance was the Bassoon Concerto in F Major by Carl Maria von Weber, performed by Michelle Bowen. And the oboe piece was the Sonata for Oboe and Continuo in C Minor. That's by Antonio Vivaldi and that was performed by Inyun Huang. Both of those are on YouTube I've linked them in the show notes. You should check those performances out. It's really, really fun to just watch people give recital performances on double reed instruments. I kind of went down a rabbit hole on YouTube while I was making this episode, and there's just so many amazing instrumentalists out there. Okay, okay, okay. So back to Helen's disagreement with her friend. Now that we've listened to some double reads, let's reset and go back to the Bond example and listen to that one more time. You only live twice. 
So yeah, that is an electric guitar in my opinion, and it has a kind of a funky sound. It's a little familiar to me, like I've heard that before, but I'm not totally remembering where. It might even be that this was like recorded down the octave, and then they used tape to speed it up and make it higher. It sounds a little bit unnatural, but there are just a couple of little things in there that do sound like a guitar to me. You. For starters, it's just kind of pitchy, like it's just sort of sour on some of those notes, which actually makes it sound more like a wind instrument in a way. That's not meant as any disrespect to my fellow wind instrumentalists. Um, I do think that people are sort of used to hearing a certain type of double reed really wailing away in that really high register and just playing slightly out of tune or kind of fighting with the pitch, which this guitar player is sort of doing. That's also why it, may, it might be like this is pitch tuned in some way or something, because just the tuning on it is a little bit odd. The thing that gives it away as a guitar to me is the specific attack and the tone of those half-step bends. So this figure walks on a B major scale, it starts on B and then it just kind of walks down, then it does the same thing down a whole step, on an A major scale it starts on A, and then it just kind of walks down. There's not a ton of attack because there's kind of just this overdrive, the whole thing is kind of squished, um, but there's a certain sound that a half step bend on the guitar has on those specific notes. So when I recreated it, I used my Les Paul, uh, I put a compressor on it for some sustain, I can't quite get the sound just because it's like weird recording gear, it's very old, I, just, I can't quite replicate it, but that's getting kind of close to what I'm hearing. And the first note, that high B, that's almost the highest note you can play on the instrument. On this guitar it goes up to a D, so just a minor third above that, that's the highest note. So it's way, way up at the top on the first string, and when you bend those notes, that G sharp bending up to the A in particular, it just has this certain sound that's very familiar, and I'm hearing that on this recording. You can also hear a pretty distinct pick attack, like a plectern attack right there at the end. I'm on the very end of the line, doo doo da, that final note, that's a pick hitting a string. So Helen, I am sorry not to be able to side with you on this one. I hope that your friendship survives this. Um, I do totally understand why you're hearing a wind instrument, but I do think this is a guitar, albeit a weird sounding, weirdly recorded one. Definitely some funny stuff going on back in those old 1960s recording studios. Mike writes in with a fun one. He writes, Does the accuracy of how a musician is depicted playing their instrument in a movie or TV show affect your immersion in that media? For example, an actor playing a pianist and the wrong keys are being played when matched up with the music, or an instrument is present in a song where that instrument isn't actually heard in the backing music. So my answer is obviously that it depends, at least in part. If a show or a movie is really good and the music isn't really the point, I'm a lot happier to suspend my disbelief than if the whole thing really depends on the music, or if I'm kind of not into it anyways, and then the music isn't believable, then it kind of will bug me more. I do appreciate when an actor really does their homework. I always think of Wendell Pierce. Many of you probably know him as Bunk from The Wire. He was also on the later show Treme, where he played a New Orleans trombone player named Antoine Baptiste, and he really did his homework for that show. He learned trombone for the part. I think he had a trombone coach on set, and he's not actually playing, but it's really believable whenever his character is playing trombone, which happens pretty often on that show, because he's a professional trombone player. Given that show's focus, like it's really focused on musicians living in New Orleans, it's very concerned 
concerned with the legitimacy of that. It would be a real problem if the playing didn't look right. So it's cool that it does. There's a 2011 NPR interview with Wendell Pierce that I'll link in the show notes. He talks about the process, learning the instrument, coming to appreciate it. I think he said he played a little bit of trumpet when he was in high school, but he'd never played before. And he kept playing after learning it for the show. Incidentally, if you haven't seen Treme, I know not a lot of people watched it, at least compared to The Wire, which not even a lot of people watched The Wire. Maybe more people have seen it now. But anyways, I really recommend Treme. It's a great show. If you like strong songs, you'd probably really get something out of Treme as well. It's a very musical show. I always describe it as normally in a TV show when they're like at a club and there's a band playing on stage and two characters are talking while the band plays. When they finish their conversation, the camera cuts away and then it's time for the next scene. On Treme, especially in the first season, they'll have their conversation and then they'll just the camera will just point at the band and then the band will play the entire song and it'll go on for another five minutes because the show is really just so much about the music and it really centers the music in a very cool way. There's a lot of highlights on that show. Wendell Pierce is one of them, though, and he's actually stayed involved in the music scene. He lent his amazing voice. I've always loved his voice ever since I heard him on The Wire. A lot of great speaking voices on The Wire. He lent his amazing voice to Wynton Marsalis's recent extended work, The Ever Funky Lowdown. I run a game of numbers. Though I'm not a numbers man... I inspire and sell confidence. Uh, don't laugh. Confidence determines the direction of the markets, and there's nothing in the world more important than money, especially if it's yours. So yeah, Wendell Pierce is great, and his portrayal of trombone playing on Treme was really convincing. Also, Miles Teller, who played the young drummer in that film Whiplash, I thought he was really convincing. I think he actually does play the drums, though I don't think he can play drums like his character in that movie did. I really don't like that movie for a lot of reasons that have nothing to do with the actual drumming in it. I I found his performance as a drummer to be believable and to be really cool. One place that I'll actually see a lot of people taking shortcuts is in animation, Um, just because there's kind of more, you know, like things just get glossed over a little bit more in animation. Though one of my favorite anime called Kids on the Slope, which I'm pretty sure I've talked about on the show before, that's all about jazz and it has a lot of scenes of these young people playing jazz together. And I believe that they actually animated every scene based on the actual performers, like they had reference footage of the musicians. Um, They almost have to have done that because the first jam session on that show when I first started watching it, that was when I knew that I was going to love this show because it was so perfectly accurate. I mean, they just had everything right. Every cross stick, every single drum fill, every piano fill, everything everyone was playing was just exactly what I was hearing. And it was so exciting to see that. I really appreciated that. Actually, there was a video game called Yakuza Zero that had a scene with a big band on stage. And I remember it was just perfectly animated. I'm sitting there just kind of playing this game where you beat people up in the street and run around and do tasks and stuff. And then there's this cutscene where this big band is on stage playing and it's just absolutely perfect. The drummer is like doing cross stick and plays a fill. The guitar player is comping and like doing the exact correct motions. I think the piano player like does this little sort of piano fill at one point and his hands just move exactly along with it. And it was really delightful. I I found it really impressive because they didn't need to do that. You know, in most video games, the band would just kind of be like rocking forward and backward a little kind of with the music, but somebody just really cared. And I love that kind of thing when you can just see the evidence that there was someone on the team who was like, nope, we're going to make this band look perfect. We're going to base it exactly on, you know, the, the band that recorded this and make it look right. Most directors are pretty smart about cutting away or how they frame shots. Damien Chazelle, the director of Whiplash, is actually very smart about that. 
if you do watch a movie and you know a character sits down to play piano, there's a reason that they almost always shoot it over the piano with the piano in between the camera and the person, so you see their face but not their hands. And then when you see them playing the piano, they get to a close-up of the hands because it's usually somebody else, a piano player, playing the correct notes. And then there are times where it's shot the other way, and they've got the whole piano and the keyboard in the frame, and you can see that they're actually playing. And even if the playing is sort of just okay, I really appreciate that because it's cool. It means the actor learned how to play piano, and that just makes the scene a little bit more fun for me to watch. So, anyways, it depends. As long as they don't just flagrantly show fake-looking playing or just be lazy about it, it's usually fine. My favorite example of this kind of thing is during the climactic scene of the movie Crossroads, not the Britney Spears movie Crossroads, the Ralph Macchio movie Crossroads. Um, Macchio plays this underdog guitarist, and he has a guitar battle at the end with the Devil's guitarist, who is played by the guitar virtuoso Steve Vai, sort of king of shred guitar, amazing guitar player. Macchio, throughout the movie, I gotta say, he does a pretty good job of pretending to play guitar. I haven't watched that movie in a while, but I feel like his fake guitar playing is pretty good. But for this climactic scene, he busts out his classical guitar repertoire, and that's kind of how he defeats the devil. Is he doesn't play blues and rock stuff; he plays his very difficult arpeggios up and down the fretboard. Of course, the irony of this is that this is all being performed by Steve Vai. So really, Steve Vai, like most musicians, is competing with himself. Now, like I said, I haven't seen the whole movie in a while. I do watch this final scene kind of often. It's on YouTube. I've linked it in the show notes. It's so much fun. It kind of stands on its own, just as this amazing showdown. And I gotta say, Ralph Macchio kills it in this final scene. He must play some guitar, and he's really worked out what to do, how to move, how to move his fingers on the fretboard. He really looks like he's playing this part. I think some of the close-ups are Steve Vai's hands, because his hands kind of seem bigger. They look like Steve Vai's hands in particular when they show his right hand in detail, since that. That's doing the picking and the finger work. It's kind of easier to fake it on your left hand, but man, I gotta say, Macchio, in these full body shots, holding that Telecaster, it's pretty convincing. I'm very impressed with the work he did in this movie. So that is a great example of some fake guitar playing that holds up, and also a really fun scene that I just like to watch because uh, it's really fun to just watch people shred on guitar. I'm, I'm a simple guy sometimes. John writes, how do you go about learning all of the jazz standards? The world of jazz seems to be really based on knowing this set of standard songs. Do you just start at page one of the real book? Or am I overthinking this and having a comprehensive knowledge of the standards is not as mandatory as I think? So yeah, repertoire. It's a bit of a sticking point for a lot of jazz students and even for a lot of professional jazz musicians. It can kind of feel like an insurmountable task. It's it's really big. There's a lot of tunes. There's like this collection of, I don't know, 100, 150 tunes that most jazz musicians are expected to know. That's especially true of rhythm section players. If you play jazz piano or bass, you're really expected to just know a whole lot of tunes because when people hire you, they want you to come in and know the tune. And if you're a drummer, boy, You've, you've got a lot of stuff to learn. Um, no, I was always jealous of drummers because they could just show up to the gig and be like, well, uh, uh, what tempo is it? What's the feel? Oh, all right, yeah, I know this tune then. <laughs> 
there are definitely players out there that know like every tune. There, you'll meet players if you play jazz who just know everything. Um, I studied with the great David Baker when I was in high school. I was really fortunate to get to do that. He was a legend um, back when he was still teaching at Indiana University. And that guy knew every song that ever existed. I'm pretty sure he knew some songs that didn't actually exist. His repertory knowledge was unbelievable. Now, I, on the other hand, have never had an amazing repertoire. Like, I just, I don't know every tune. It's never been my strong suit. I, I did kind of find it to be a pain when I was in school. Though there was a period where I got serious about learning tunes, and I got pretty good at it, and I definitely know, you know, a lot of jazz tunes, certainly well enough to fake it on the bandstand. I was never one of those players that could just call Joy Spring or Pensativa on a gig and like play it perfectly with all the right chord extensions and everything for memory. I would bring a fake book to a gig and there's nothing wrong with bringing a fake book to a gig. As for how you go about learning repertoire, actually, John, your idea of starting at page one of the real book and just working your way through it isn't a bad idea. Lots of people do recommend that as a starting point for repertoire. The real book, for anyone who doesn't know, it's the most famous fake book in the world. A fake book is a collection of technically illegal head charts, so that's just the melody and the chord progression, and it's this one book that you would need to bring to a gig, and that was kind of the idea behind making it was, well, we're always kind of like cobbling together these weird collections of charts. What if we just made a standardized thing that and then sold it uh, illegally and then everyone could have it. It's a really good example of the market providing when everyone needs a thing and publishers weren't making this happen. Um, someone made it happen because the fake book as we know it is a very, very useful thing for gigging musicians. By the way, I strongly recommend this recent episode of the very well-known podcast 99% Invisible. They did an episode about the real book. It's really great. It's this retelling of the history of that book and I actually learned a lot listening to it. Um, it made me very proud of my tattoo under-the-counter copy of the C Real book that I still have from school, though it's probably for the best that you can buy one legally now. So yeah, working through the Real book, not a terrible idea. I did that for a while. I think that was just sort of, I used that as my template, and I think I learned a new tune every week for a while. And if you move at that rate, you'll actually learn repertoire pretty fast. You have to be patient with yourself. You can't rush through it because the tune needs time to kind of germinate in your brain so that you actually know it so that then in six months someone calls it on a gig, you're not going to totally have forgotten it because you blew through it. You learned it in a day and then forgot it. So you want to give yourself some time and like build a whole structure and a scaffold around it. But if you learn a new tune every week or every two weeks, that's 52 or 26 tunes a year. That's not bad if you're memorizing those and really getting them solid. Do that for five years or something and you're well on your way to like knowing every tune that you need to know and having a really strong repertoire. That's kind of what people do when they want to learn them. So behind me as I talk, you're actually listening to me playing through tunes from the real book in alphabetical order on piano. And I do want to say that I don't think you need to learn every tune in the real book or even most of them. Like I don't think you need to know I Ariba or Bittersweet in the Ozone or Chippy or Crystal Silence. Those tunes are cool, but there's definitely tunes that are just sort of tunes that the people who initially put the real book together thought were cool or, you know, their professors wrote those songs and they wanted to include them, but they're not considered essential repertoire. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to make a list of the tunes in the real book that I think you should learn or at least start with. I'll make it an alphabetical list. I'll put it at the bottom of the show notes. Start with those tunes. And if you learn those all, you'll be in pretty good shape. And I don't mean to say that some tunes are more definitive than others or anything like that. Don't email me about songs I left off the list. I just know the entire real book could be kind of overwhelming. And I want to give you useful advice. So this is somewhere to start. Learn the tunes from the real book that I'm going to list down in the show notes. And that's a pretty good starting point. 
And I will say, I don't play jazz casuals anymore. I don't need to know repertoire for practical reasons, but it was really helpful for me as a composer and as a musician just to learn all of these songs because they're really good songs with amazing harmony and beautiful melodies. It's just good stuff. So yeah, that's my advice, is kind of do what you were thinking about doing. Start at the beginning of the real book and work your way through it. Go with that list that I put down in the show notes and just do a new tune each week. And if possible, learn it at the piano. Guitar is fine too, but like really learn the harmony and learn the chords, because that's what you're trying to learn. And that's what'll really kind of broaden your musical palette if you do it. So yeah, repertoire can seem intimidating, but like anything, it's, uh, it's a lot less intimidating if you just break it down to one thing at a time and give yourself a really long time to a massive repertoire. Good luck. Dirk writes, at the end of episode three of James Acaster's hilarious Netflix stand-up special repertoire, he plays Old Lang Syne on something. You never really get a good look at the surface of it. It appears to be some sort of older electronic device that he uses a stylus with to produce fixed tones that change as he slides the stylus. Dirk continues, I regularly rewatch this special because it makes me laugh so consistently every time, but I do wonder what that thing is. Can you please help me figure this out? Well, yes, Dirk, I actually can help you figure this out. This is an instrument that I actually talked about this year on Strong Songs in the very first episode of year three about David Bowie's Space Oddity. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to major so you can hear that same sound right there in the middle, like a little electrical cow holding a low note. There's also a big dramatic glissando on the same instrument a little bit later in the song. Right here. It's a very cool little instrument. It's called a stylophone a little tiny pocket synthesizer that you play with a stylus, just as Dirk describes. It's about the size of an old graphing calculator, and it's a really funny bit when a caster plays it in his stand-up routine. He, like, sweats and acts like he's putting all this thought into it. And it's also a kind of a funny oddball instrument that most people in the audience probably haven't seen, so that kind of heightens the bit a little bit. The stylophone is really cool. I kind of want one. It was created by a company called Debrec back in the 60s, but you can actually still buy them. They make a new one. And there's a healthy little niche scene of people who play stylophone. Um, go look around on YouTube for stylophone and you'll find a lot of people making some pretty entertaining things with the instrument. It's this weird sound. It's always sounded to me kind of like an old speaking spell or like an old game of Simon. Probably had a similar speaker and sound generator to those old toys. So it kind of sounds like a toy. It's this nice mix between a toy and a usable synth, though of course, if it's good enough for David Bowie, it's good enough for everybody. So that's the stylophone, a very cool instrument and useful in a stand-up routine as it turns out. Ed writes, I listened to your discussion of rock versus jazz solos on a previous Q&A episode. I found it fascinating, and for a minute, I thought it would answer a long-standing question of mine, but it didn't quite get there, so here's the question. Since jazz is so collaborative in its process and never produced live exactly as a first iconic recording, what must a recording session be like? It seems like rock and pop recordings famously go through endless takes to achieve perceived perfection. Then in jazz, 
Would not the unique collaboration each time a song is played in the studio be an impossible job for the producer? Each take would seem to be totally different from the preceding and following ones. Which take is best if there is no objective shared vision of the end product? This is a fun question and actually, okay, so I can only base this on jazz and rock recording sessions that I've been a part of, but I've played on my share of both. They are definitely different, but they're not always as different as you might think and not in the ways that you might think. For starters, it is true that some rock and pop bands will spend ages fine tuning every performance, they'll like record the instruments separately, they'll do overdubs and overdubs and editing and they'll make the whole thing super perfect, but a lot of bands don't actually record that way. A lot of bands will set up in the studio, then they'll record the entire tune all the way through at the same time playing together, and though their parts are generally worked out ahead of time, there's still a lot of room for spontaneity and improvisation in the studio, particularly for really good bands or bands that have been playing together for a long time. They try to get that live energy and that that means that they're making stuff up. They're they're coming up with, you know, different fills and different improvised lines. So it's not quite as freeform as some jazz music is, but there's still a lot of room for freedom in, you know, rock and pop and funk and R&B and, you know, non-jazz styles of music. And there's room for each take to be really different than the one before it. On the other hand, jazz, yeah, it's collaborative, it's improvisational, there's a lot of freedom in how the players might play a given take, but a jazz studio recording session tends to be a little more consistent and scripted than you may be picturing. The arrangement is usually set ahead of time, the solo order is set, and a lot of times the players will work out the ideas, or at least a lot of the ideas that they want to play with ahead of time. It's not as spontaneous and improvised as you may think. Of course, the spirit of the moment still counts for a lot. There's a lot of stuff that can happen on a given take of a jazz tune, and it tends to go farther afield than a rock or pop recording. You can get into the weeds and into some unexpected territory where you're really somewhere special and new, and then you wind up just keeping that take because, well, we didn't expect that we would go into this completely different time feel and really experiment. I mean, that kind of stuff does happen more in jazz, but at the same time, there's kind of a little bit more structure than you may be picturing. A good example of that is the alternate take of Monin by Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, just to pick a tune that I've talked about on the show. There is an alternate take of that that you can listen to, and it's really interesting to listen to because it's not actually all that different than the original, than the one that they released that I talked about on the show. love when they release alternate takes of jazz recordings like that because you can hear people working through their ideas. There are some alternate takes on John Coltrane's Giant Steps that are really classic and you can hear how he's figuring out this harmony, different ways that he was navigating the changes. There on Monin, you can hear Lee Morgan working out some of the same licks that he has on that iconic main solo that he plays. Ba 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 da that one and ba da 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 but like he plays with all those ideas, but he's playing different stuff. He plays the bridge the same, but then he does some of the two five ones. He plays the same licks over them. It's really cool and very informative. And it should tell you that there's not actually, it's a total raw improvisation happening at every moment, especially not on a pretty straightforward recording session like that one. Like free jazz groups a little bit later, you know, ensembles from the 60s and 70s, you might get a little bit more really far afield stuff, but even then, there's more structure than you might think in people are playing things that they've sort of decided on ahead of time a little bit more than you may think, at least when they're recording in the studio. 
So no matter what kind of band is recording, the process winds up being kind of similar. You play through the tune, then you check in with the producer. Maybe the producer gives you some notes. They want another take. They want you to change a couple of things. You do another take. Maybe you do a third take. Sometimes you'll finish a take and it was just super hot and everyone looks at one another and you all kind of know that was the take. That's usually a collective thing. You can just kind of tell when everyone was really feeling it. And then after the fact, you may go and do overdubs. You may quickly punch in. You know, if you kind of blew a note just in one place, even though it was a killer take, you can go and fix little things like that, depending on the style of music and whether that's kind of a standard thing that people want to do. So while jazz is improvisational, it still does work that way. And that does mean that sometimes if you're playing on a jazz recording session, you'll play your best solo, the best solo you've ever played on a tune. And then it'll turn out that doesn't wind up being the take that they go with and you have to kind of resign yourself to the good of the group and just trust the producer or trust the band leader even though maybe you played an awesome solo the overall take wasn't quite the best take so it's a good motivation to just play a really good solo on every single take because you never know what'll wind up being the one that they keep Our final question of year three is on a similar subject, though it's a bit more abstract and philosophical. I did think it was interesting, and I wanted to share it with you all as we near the end of year three of Strong Songs. David writes, I was poking around the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, as I am wont to do while bored on the weekend, and I came across this entry on the philosophy of music. In addition to discussing several topics that have been interesting to me over my music listening life, especially the question of where a work lives between its written composition, recording, various performances, performances, etc., and the perhaps superficial parallels between language and music, the following passage from section 2 reminded me of your discussion in a previous Q&A episode about jazz versus rock solos. Quote, Though jazz is not necessarily improvisational, and very few jazz performances lack any sort of prior compositional process, the centrality of improvisation to jazz presents a challenge to the musical ontologist. One might argue that jazz works are ontologically like classical works, composed for multiple different performances, but that they tend to be thinner, leaving more room for improvisation. The difficulty is to specify the work without conflating one work with another, since tokening the melody is not required and many works share the same harmonic structure. As a result, some argue that the performance is itself the work. One problem here is parody with classical music. If jazz performances are musical works in their own right, it is difficult to deny that status to classical performances of works. This seems to multiply works beyond what we usually think is necessary. A third possibility is that in jazz, there are no works, only performances. This is counterintuitive if work is an evaluative term, but it is not obvious that that is the case." End quote. Here's David again. I don't think some of these analytical approaches are necessarily or even particularly helpful when it comes to appreciating music, but for yourself and Strong Songs listeners, they may be intriguing to grapple with. I'm curious what your intuition is. At what point of organization and with which properties does a series of sounds cohere into this thing that we call music? So I mostly just want to leave those questions with you all, but I think that if you've listened to my show for any length of time, my thoughts on that question won't really surprise you. It's all music, and music takes many forms. The act of interpreting someone else's composition and performing it, that is a musical act. That's creative and musical. So is writing down a piece of music. So is taking someone else's chord progression and improvising a new melody over it. And that specifically is absolutely a work unto itself. And I think that really answers the question raised by the excerpt that David sent in. I've transcribed tons of improvised 
jazz solos, and it's not actually a difficult question for me. Each solo is a composition, and so each solo can be considered a work unto itself. It was created spontaneously, but the time frame in which a composition was composed has no bearing, at least ontologically, on the nature of the work itself. Jazz is spontaneous composition, and while jazz musicians use common chord progressions and melodic licks as the framework for their compositions, classical composers do the same thing. They use common melodic and harmonic frameworks for their compositions, scales, key centers, cadences, things like that. And so it's basically the same thing, the only difference is the time frame. So yes, an improvised solo is a work unto itself, which means that every jazz solo ever recorded is a mini composition, and a given jazz performance might contain within it a number of separate spontaneously composed works. And that gets at my broader thinking here, that it's a mistake to think too granularly about this kind of thing, because it invariably leads to a restrictive way of thinking about music. So there's a line between playing a melody someone else wrote and improvising a new melody over the chord changes written by the same person. The first one is more of a performance, though even that can be enough of a reinterpretation to stand on its own as a work. Like Jimi Hendrix's performance of the Star Spangled Banner certainly stands on its own. And that kind of gets at my broader thinking. In the end, my own approach to music resists ontology. I generally think of ontology as the work of defining things and putting them into categories, and I gotta say that I resist that at every turn. My understanding of music is way broader than some split between composition and performance. You can write a piece, someone else can perform that piece, but someone else can perform that version of the piece in a new way that involves composing new elements, and then someone can reinterpret that interpretation, and that's how music actually works in culture. That's how music grows and changes. That's the kind of thing I'm regularly demonstrating on this show whenever we get into influences in the sort of way that American music is really just this huge melting pot of influences from all around the world coming together to create something new. And that's just talking about writing and performing music, that's leaving out all the other musical disciplines that are every bit as important, arranging, producing, mixing, or recording. I mean, that's something that's a 20th century uh, innovation, but it's just as important to the way that we experience music and culture now, even taking existing recordings and remixing them or arranging them in a certain order with a certain intentionality for an audience. That is also a musical process, and that results in a musical work. The intentionality is the thing, and anywhere that human, creative intentionality meets organized sonic elements, you get music, and any given example of one of those musical acts can be considered a work unto itself. I will close with a book recommendation for those of you who find these sorts of questions interesting. Early in the year, I spoke with pianist Carmen Staff for the show. It's a bonus episode that you can go back and listen to that you really should listen to. She mentioned this book, Harmonic Experience, Tonal Harmony from Its Natural Origins to Its Modern Expression by W.A. Matthew. I bought that book on her recommendation. I've been reading it, and it is amazing. It's a beautiful book that I heartily recommend to anyone who likes to think deeply about music and the many powerful ways it affects us. And if you're listening to this show, that's probably you. And that'll do it for this final Q&A episode of Year 3. Man, time sure does fly. Thank you so much to everyone who's submitted questions for the show. And if you have a question you want to send in, I am certainly going to be doing more mailbag episodes next year. So send your questions or thoughts, recommendations, really anything to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. Thanks so much to all of you who support the show. You can drop a one-time donation via the PayPal link in the show notes. And if you want to sign up for the Patreon, you can get access to a new exclusive bonus podcast feed for patrons. So go to patreon.com slash strong songs to sign up. The Strong Songs Discord, meanwhile, is going really great. There's lots of lively music discussion and album recommending going on over there. It's a really fun little community. So if you'd like to come and talk about music with some other listeners of the show, you can find a link for that down in the show notes as well. 
really, there's a lot of stuff down in the show notes. There's links for all kinds of things. Go read the show notes. Uh, There's a lot down there. This episode's outro soloist is guitarist Jeff Bean, and there's a fun story behind this one. Jeff actually went to the same high school as I did in Bloomington, Indiana, and like me, he was a hotshot young jazz student. He played the guitar. Though he was older than I was, he was a senior when I was a freshman, and we never actually met back when we were in school. A few months back, he discovered Strong Songs thanks to a friend's recommendation, and he slowly came to realize over the course of listening to it that we went to the same high school. I even had our former band director on the show back in year one for an interview. So we reached out, we've been catching up via email. He's now an English professor in Michigan, and he still plays guitar off and on, so I asked if he'd want to do an outro solo. He was into it. He wanted me to stress that his guitar chops are pretty rusty, but I don't know. I think he sounds pretty great, if you ask me. So stick around for Jeff Bean, and I'll see you all in a couple of weeks for yet another strong song. Thank you.